and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today on the show, we welcome Institutional Portfolio Manager Bo Koash. He discusses the expectations surrounding inflation, the similarities and differences about Canada compared to the 2008 financial crisis in the U.S., and much more. Bo explains how the U.S. was recently able to add over 150,000 jobs than what was initially anticipated. Major reasons for this included the opportunity for selective security investment, which notes stabilization in the big seven companies, as well as significant productivity improvement expectations from them. NVIDIA is currently highlighted for its potential influence in the semiconductor industry and other companies within that space will make an impact with NVIDIA as its centerpiece. Bo also speaks on how the Federal Reserve's goal for inflation remains to get down to 2%, with the current progress to doing so being a bit confusing. The Reserve prefers to use the Personal Consumption Expenditures inflation metric, which currently indicates movement towards the 2% target, but the Consumer Price Index hovers around 3.1% or 3.5%, a significantly higher figure. This podcast was recorded on February 2, 2024 got to start with these big numbers, 350,000 jobs added, beating expectations of about 185,000. What is going on here? Um, Why did the U.S. do so well on those numbers? Well, it did well last month, too. Um, The U.S. is just, we had probably a little bit of a dip a few months ago. Um, And a lot of it was probably on the back of commercial real estate issues and things that we were seeing earlier in the year. Regional banks were having a hard time. Their books were upside down in terms of their losses and their fixed income portfolios. Then the commercial real estate is kind of a latent, um, you know, it was, it was hot on the scene kind of early in the year. And now it's coming back into focus. There were some issues with a New York uh, regional bank or a small bank, community bank, and uh, and maybe a building or two that's taken a loss. There's been a lot of buildings handed back, actually, when they've been trying to get refinanced, and there's just no equity left, so the owners just leave leave the building to the to the lenders. So there is a lot of that going on in the B and C class buildings. That's kind of below where most of the institutional grade uh, real estate is happening, but that's kind of on the back burner. People seem to have forgotten that and have moved on, and you know, so far. Like you're saying, we've got AI with the big seven. Uh, that theme is feeling like it's going to produce some productivity gains and some uh, helpful growth for those companies specifically, and maybe the, the next two or three, like uh, uh, AD, uh, so some of the other uh, semiconductors besides NVIDIA should, I don't want to start mentioning names, but NVIDIA becomes the, the big focus piece. And then the other, there could be a couple other three or four below them that do quite well in that space. But you're seeing some hope in that area. And then other, uh, other of the big seven are, are, you know, kind of flattening out a little bit. So you've got some opportunities to do, to do security selection. On the fixed income side, you know, we've reacted to the strong number. Today, we're up about 10 basis points in 10 years in the U.S. Treasuries at about 15 basis points in yield. So the, the fixed income market's taken it in, in stride. I would, have, I would have said that's more of a normal day's volatility. In the last uh, year or so, we've had a lots of up and down 
you know, 15 basis point days in fixed income. So this doesn't feel like it's an outlier whatsoever. And I think the equity market's taken it in stride. And so I think this is kind of the new normal and it feels much like it did back in 2006 when, you know, we had tight spreads in fixed income. We had treasury yields that were kind of where they are today. They're back to where they were when we started last year. So we still we still really like fixed income from a starting point. Um, and, you know, I think we're just plugging away in this mid cycle. We're toing and froing. Um, you know, nothing feels like it's going to dive off a cliff and nothing feels like it's going to climb to the sky. So I feel like we're in balance here in a like a like a slightly growing but decent story here in the U.S. Let's uh, we'll dig into dig into all that in a minute, but let's go back two days. So two days ago, the the Fed um, didn't raise rates, didn't cut rates. I think most people expected they'd stand pat, but often it's uh, you know the devil's in the details. When you look at the announcement they made, the the comments they're talking about, is there anything that they said that leads you to believe something might change in the future? What did you take from that announcement? Yeah, all of our official parsers of Fed speak have said yeah, some of the comments were a bit more dovish than they than they've seen. So, um, you know, no longer is really anything hawkish. We've already put in the terminal rates for this cycle. Uh, we, we feel pretty strongly about Fed funds terminals already in 10 year terminal is already in. By that, I just mean, you know, I think we peaked at something like five, 510 basis points for the 10 year Treasury yield and the Fed funds rate at you know, just over 5%. So we think that that's already in. And now the, the big debate is how fast do we cut? Do we need to even cut? How fast do we cut? How many cuts? So uh, and when that will happen, our view has been because things are going along just fine. There's no reason for the Fed to use their current cushion. They work so hard to get things slowed down on the inflation front. There's no reason to bring rates down right now. So we we were kind of in the you know, very low probability camp for a March, for a, uh, yeah, for early, you know, Feb, for a Jan move in rates, kind of thinking maybe even the numbers for March are probably coming down in probability, maybe thinking more back half of the year. So think kind of June and then plus that for maybe three, three uh, reductions in rates, only though if the economy can't stand being at these high rates. So far, it's proven out to be okay, not terrible. Um, and only if the Fed really needs it. And remember, you know, we're in a volatile world right now. So uh, I think the Fed is doing some risk management and holding on to some cushion because uh, we, we've we never seen a, and we, we've heard from lots of experts in the global macro space and our own internal macro. So we've never seen as many problems potential big macro events that could pop up and things that we don't even know yet. You, you you hear headlines like China hacking into some of the infrastructure. You hear things, you know, you, we follow what's going on in Israel, Hamas. We follow what's going on in Ukraine, Russia. You know, we've got a lot of stuff going on right now from a global perspective. And I just don't see why if, uh, if the economy is moving along just fine, that why we'd have to, you know, use some of our dry powder, the Fed's dry powder to entice any kind of growth when things are growing just fine. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, on the flip side of that, perhaps, so job numbers are higher. Um, people aren't maybe as concerned about a recession. They're feeling good. Okay. Maybe I can go out. I can start spending a bit more. Is there a risk 
you know, a lot of this is driven by sentiment, investing and is there a risk that people feel good? They go back and inflation ends up getting higher, which then obviously would kind of contradict everything that the Fed is trying to do. Yes. So your your tail risk outline you just kind of worked out is is a concern. We think it is really in the tail, um, a low probability that we get inflation to spike from here. Um, and a lot of that is because the supply chain. Now, you could say Red Sea being shut down could create some supply chain issues in the energy space or something like that. But we think the COVID supply chain shocks have kind of all flattened out. And you think about the behavior that you go through in a supply chain issue. If you can't get stuff, you're just going to order over. If you're a purchasing manager, you're probably going to do nothing but over order stuff and you're going to try to hoard stuff. And so we think that that whole um, kind of you know, rampant inflation that was caused by most likely behavioral uh, ordering and things like that and, and making sure that you've got enough supplies, uh, that is probably, that's probably passed. Um, but, we'll, but we will see. We'll see how much spending, uh, if you're spending a lot of your, you know, your, your wages on travel and goods. But, but, you know, we have had a bit of a goods recession here. I think that's lifting a little bit. Um, services have been in, you know, we still have planes that are filled. Uh, you can't, it's hard to get, you know, the right planes at the right time. And, you know, it's very busy in terms of travel and uh, people still making vacations. I think last year was the busiest summer ever for people going to Europe from here uh, in the States, probably from Canada to Europe also. But there's been a, a lot of activity, uh, but there is that kind of that risk that you could get some spending inflation, probably not that supply chain inflation that we saw post-COVID. So what do you think? I mean, if if the goal still is to get to that 2% and, and you know, we've seen a little bit back and forth around the 3.1, 3.4, you know, area 3.5. How do they get to 2%? So the favorite, the, the, the favorite uh, metric is PCE for the Fed. So and that seems that we've got a two handle on that. And that, that's working its way. The CPI number, how do you get to a reasonably no, a lower number towards 2%? It's, there's only one number in CPI, and that's owner's equivalent rent. And that's a funky number that is not uh, data-driven. It's, it's a survey-driven. Uh, so if you look at real time, and I, I know most of the folks that are on this call have heard this argument. of you, If you look at uh, Redfin or Zillow or any kind of online real estate, uh, real-time data, it's telling you that prices are lower that rents are lower, but we're not seeing that in the OER numbers. So uh, if you just took what the live numbers are saying from real-time data and took that trend into OER calculation, we'd be at 2% tomorrow. It's just not popping up in that number. So um, I guess we'll see how that rolls in at some point. At some point it could be, it could get there really quick. Um, but you, but then you get the flip side of that. And we always like to talk about the flip side, Brian, because you, you just can't count on one scenario working on a clean line. You know, Goldman Sachs came out and they said, you know, they think that housing will be up 5% this year. Um, I know you're not feeling that up north this year, but you know, at some point, you know, we're just not, we don't have enough units here in the States 
uh, if you look at almost any major market, there's hardly any inventory that's coming on, and it's very difficult to 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 get prices to come down if you have no inventory. So people have locked in; uh, they've had incentive not to move because then they lose their two percent, three percent mortgage and have to re-up in a new mortgage for the current market values are in the six, seven percent area. So that's kind of why things haven't really moved. And that's kind of why we're in a bit of a stalemate on the real estate market here in the States. I think just maybe one last question, just on, on rates and inflation and all of this. Do you think that um, you mentioned at the beginning, why, you know, why would the Fed cut if uh, things are kind of stable now? Do you think they wait for that 2%? Is there any, you know, would they do it before or, or is that kind of, okay, we're hit 2% now, now, now we're good. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, typically what happens is the, the bond market moves way ahead of the Fed. And we saw that again. So even before the Fed came out and did the mea culpa of, we think we're there. Um, that was, you know, late October. Um, the market was moving already. So we had a couple of big, strong moves. And then we faded hard. And then after the, the Fed basically came out with the mea culpa, the market moved massively again. And, you know, we had that really nice return in fixed income in November and December. In two months, we got back a whole, we, we created a 6 to 7% return out of having a flat year to maybe slightly down. So uh, I think it was a record uh, return month or two in the bond markets here down here so just amazing returns we still think we have decent returns left in it because i think the fed um and it there's also this whole recent recency bias issue so uh in terms of getting inflation down to two percent you know maybe just a two handle is fine so high twos but i think the market may be fine with that we're we're able to function our economy is functioning at higher higher yields than I think anyone expected it to. And I think that's what's throwing this off. Everyone thought, you know, you need to be close to zero to have growth. Well, we're, it's proving out that if you starve starve people of, of services and fun and travel for a couple of years, they're gonna spend and to get it back. They want, they want their fun. And I think that's what we've seen. Now, whether that can stay the course and people have feel flush enough to keep spending, that's going to be the debate. And I think that's the, the that plus kind of what the real risks are out in the world. That's why the Fed probably wants to keep some dry powder to see if they can manage manage its way lower. So um, moving on to opportunities in fixed income, there was once a time where a lot of people thought bonds were boring. Uh, you may you may disagree with that, but uh, everyone doesn't. Nobody thinks that anymore. So. Uh, <laughs> You know, where are the opportunities? Um, how would you kind of characterize the sector today? And where, yeah, where, what are you, what are you looking at? So we always just look at, we look at valuation first, you know, where are, and, and how much money can we make for clients? And um, today, today's market, you know, U.S. Treasuries are the cheap asset. We haven't seen U.S. Treasuries at these yield levels since 2006. They have been cheaper, you know, in the fall, but we're, now at the at call it the four percent level for Treasury ten years, and so we we feel like we still that, and that's at the seventy fifth percentile. That's the cheapest twenty fifth percentile that you can be in in the la over the last fifteen years. So we 
we don't think that you're going to get a lot better opportunities to buy plain old treasuries when you compare against corporates. High grade corporates are in the 15th percentile. They're very tight. Um, they're very they're expensive. High yield is in the 20th percentile. Very tight. And typically, when you're buying risk assets at these spread levels, you don't make you just don't make money in in buying corporates at those spreads. The good news today is you have a spread plus the treasury component. That's what creates the coupon for a corporation. So as long as the treasury piece is still yieldy, you can make some money owning the corporate. Um, it's just that it's you know you're going to have to have uh, a big rally, a, a rally in rates to compensate for those tight spreads. I think that's what's going on here. That's why spreads keep tightening because you've got absolute yield buyers loving the coupon. And, uh, but we, we think at some point we're going to make more money by holding off and not adding here, but waiting until we get better opportunities to add in corporates and high yield. But those are, those are really, that's the offset. So we're, we have great opportunities in treasuries. Not so great opportunities in uh, high yield, in high grade credit. We think mortgages are fine. They're they're back to the richer part of their valuation, so they're okay. Uh, leverage loans, which is a high yield loan uh, category, is still about 40, 40th percentile. So it's still fine buying those, and you've got the floating rate uh, underneath it as the base rate. So you've got a five percent starting yield plus a few hundred basis points, you're in the eight to 9% yields for owning a leveraged loan. Pretty good yield still, especially if you've got a, a, a staff that can do the work like our team can on potential bankruptcies. Can this business support those bigger coupons? Remember those coupons were, they were paying 3% just a few years ago, and now they've got that 5% LIBOR slash SOFR rate on top of it. So now they've got you know, yields that are three or coupons that are three times what they used to spend. So as long as you, you have a company that can defend their margins and still pay those coupons, you're going to be fine. We, we actually had a question from, from uh, the viewers here. Uh, one is looking ahead, does the fixed income team have a strong preference for U.S., Canada or international bonds? So we, we like, um, we like duration. So, uh, you know, Canada bonds have duration too. U.S. bonds have duration too. We love Fortress North America. So fundamentally, I think we're, we're in good shape. Your yields are a little bit tighter on the treasury curves than ours, but we still think we, we like them both. In most of the strategies that I'm involved with, we, it's mostly U.S., it's mostly U.S. dollar, uh, but we, we do like both and we, we think that the treasuries of either can do pretty well. Uh, you've got a little bit of a housing issue up north. We don't have the same housing. That housing issue that, that you've got is more like what we had in 08 or 09, uh, when you had a lot of fear about, you know, kind of the the amount of equity you had in your house and do you want, can you afford that loan? And we had a, a, a lots of layoffs in, in 08, 09, which I don't think you're having now, but we, we had some, we had a tough 0809, which really rinsed out a lot of real estate equity. But um, I think beside that, I think we feel, you know, we, we like the U.S., we like Canada. Uh, we also are investing in places like Mexico and we own bonds uh, from Mex and Brazil. And 
other countries that are doing pretty well in this new economy. So, you know, and I think the the onshoring or the nearshoring that's happening in Canada and Mexico for for U.S. has has been really strong. So, so we like we like the whole NAFTA North America infrastructure. Um. You mentioned duration, and and uh, let's let's talk about the yield curve a bit. It's still inverted. How does that look? How does it balance out? What does that mean for opportunities when you start seeing that normalize a bit? Yeah, so the the yield curve has been inverted for a long time now. So we've we're now at thirty basis points, and and when we say just a quick definition, the ten year yield, the or the ten year yield minus the two year yield. What is that? What is that in terms of yield? It's negative thirty basis points today. So the 10-year yield is below the two-year yield by 30 basis points. Typically, it's 100 basis points higher. Um, so if we get back to a normalized yield curve, you can have 130 basis points more of return. That would give you multiple points of performance if you think about duration and how those bonds would perform out the curve uh, in that five to 10-year part of the curve if you own them. Um, and they rallied that much. So, so we feel like the yield curve will have to normalize at some point because it always does. It's not, it's not an if, it's a when. And that's going to depend on when the Fed brings the front end down or we could have a steepener by having 10 years come up. It's more likely that it's going to be the bull steepener where the two-year yield comes down and the 10-year yield comes down a little bit, but that's probably going to be mostly from two years coming back down from, say, 5% back down to, you know, something like two, two-ish percent, something like that. And then you have a three, three and a half-ish type 10-year yield. So that's a more normalized curve. That's also the recency bias. So uh, everyone thinks we got to get down to, you know, closer to zero rates. We may not have to. Our economy is working pretty well at these current rates. Now, maybe that's not going to be a forever, but um, I think we'll see how that works out. But we're positioned to do really well. Uh, we have lots of liquidity in our portfolios because we own lots of treasuries. We, owe it, we own it in the five to 10 year part of the curve. And that should really benefit if we get a more normalized curve. But even if it, nothing happens and we have higher for longer, we have a nice yield in a lot of our strategies of six, seven percent. And if we can do that, I think most folks would take six, seven percent with inflation down at three or below. You've got a very nice uh, return over inflation. And I think a lot of our clients would love to see that going forward. Part, you know, door number two would be if we have starting yield at six percent and we have that yield curve shift and we have the uh, a steepener, we can get three or four or five points of return, plus a starting yield of 6%, 7% to get you into the double digit returns. So you've got the starting yield plus a total return. And if it, that all goes wrong and we have a bump in the night, uh, we can sell all of our treasuries and buy risk assets. And that'll be, that'll set us up for a really high return. Um, if something goes wrong in credit or we have a big risk on event somewhere in the world, we already talked a little bit about some of the potentials and that would be a um, you know a, a much bigger return, but but you'd have to wait a little bit to have that work out. So that's kind of how we're we're game planning and game theorying the whole idea of you know what could happen and how could we how could our strategies work 
in, in every one of those scenarios. Yeah, that's great. And I, you know, I, I wonder if people may be um, thinking about the markets these days. It is volatile. You don't know what's going to happen. Someone might say, hey, I'm going to just put all my money in a high interest savings account and earn somewhere between four and five percent and, and leave it there. Um, why, sh you know, what do you think about that? Why shouldn't they do that? Or, or is that an option? What, what do you think? Well, yeah, number one, if they need the money quickly, that's a great way to go. Right. You're getting four or five percent at a front end. It's fine. It's fine if you need access to that capital. Um, we're, we're actually seeing a lot of consultants here in the States begging their clients to get longer duration. So they a lot of clients were, you know, weren't have not been in bonds. They've rather have been overweight equities or other things. And now they're saying, let's go back in. Let's go back into bonds. It's actually or increase our bond allocation. And we got to now extend in duration because if we own a 5% money market and it goes to 3% because the Fed is bringing or the market races ahead and brings rates down, then you're just going from 5 to 3% without making any money. You're just getting a reduction in your, your annual payout by owning that money market or your however it is. It might float. It might do something else. You're not making any capital. But if you own a a bond fund with some duration in it and we go from six percent seven percent down to five percent all in yields that's where you make several points and you can you can use that as part of your return to offset some of your living expenses or whatever you're using fixed income for does that make sense brian yeah 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 definitely um so we, we talked uh, we just got a question that came in maybe i'll I'll ask that first, but how much of the Fed's rate move downwards is already priced into markets? So the Fed funds futures is an active, there's also a, something on Bloomberg, you may not have access to Bloomberg called WERP, but we watch it, Every the market watches these things. And the, you know, one point earlier in the year, the, the Fed funds futures were saying, just ba based on rates and the forward looking curves that the, that it, that the market was discounting six to seven rate cuts this year. We thought that was way too many. Um, so today, and I haven't looked at it today, uh, after some of the numbers this morning, my guess is given that rates are coming up and have risen by 10 bips in 10 years and 15 bips in two years, you have to say that that's, we're probably at like four moves. Uh, I think that we, we, a couple months ago, we we're at six. I think we've moved to you know five-ish. We're probably after today looking at four. We've been in the camp when folks are saying six. We've been, we've always been thinking three-ish, maybe four, but it's going to be back-end loaded just given how well the economy's been been doing here. So I think today, if I were to look at it, um, and, and you know, it's probably and it can ch it changes. It's a very volatile number because it's based on all the betting in the Fed funds futures. Uh, but it can change pretty dramatically between three and five, you know, a lot. So uh, I would say, though, just follow rates. If rates are going up, uh, that means that there's less there's there's less of a chance that the Fed funds are predicting that the Fed is going to cut rates. If the rates are coming down quickly or there's more volatility coming down, uh, then you can guess that there's the betters or the Folks buying those are thinking that the Fed is going to cut rates uh, faster back to like a five or six type level.
Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Um, we just have a couple of minutes left, and I and I, maybe I can ask a bit of a different question. I, I wonder, um, you know, I know when I see these announcements come out, you're always on, you know, on edge, uh, and and sometimes you see a good job numbers, and you're like, oh no, like we want to have this recession so we can get past it. How do what you, you rooting for? What, what, you, what were you rooting for today? Right. I yeah, yeah. I, I don't even know anymore. But when you look at these numbers, um, you know, what what are you sort of hoping to see? Well. I just, every time we get a job, like this, there's only five economic numbers that matter that create any volatility. It's the payroll number, CPI, retail sales, uh, personal income, and ISM. Those are the biggest, biggest five movers of rate volatility by far. Nothing else really matters. Um, when I look at um, these economic announcements, I just look to what's happening in the bond markets, like what is moving on rates and and trying to put that and then equities, like what's going on. Equities. On the on the back of today's huge beat, you know, equities are NASDAQ is up nicely. It's fine. Um, and the Dow is down a little bit, but it's kind of a muted response or the equity market is taking it nicely, like it's not selling off hard. So feel like the market then would tell you that the market's already accepting that the Fed is probably not going to be moving rates down quickly if the equity market's taking it that that way. And that we're only off 10 basis points in the 10-year. That's a more of a normal, we've almost every day we're up or down 10 basis points. So this is not an outrageous, you look at the headline number, you, you shriek at the beat is double the expected. But you pull back and look at the where the where the levels are in the marketplace, and it's not really that different than normal a normal trading day. So, uh, to me, I always pair the the number and not try to analyze it too much with the where the market is because we're always trying to really think about valuation. And if you're not approaching it that way, you're really if you're trying to outguess the market or out project the market or trying to you know kind of Outposition the market, yeah, it's a tough. That's a tough way to make money for clients. So we typically are good nowcasters. We see what was going on today. Uh, we we it's kind of like the Howard Marks quote. Uh, There's only two kinds of forecasters: those who know they're wrong and those who don't know they're wrong. So I kind of like his like it's a very easy uh, mantra to kind of follow. But but that's why we're we're nowcasters because we're not trying to forecast or trying to position for like this massive duration move or something. We're trying to see what the market's doing and then setting our portfolios uh, to try to maximize uh, returns for our clients, given what we know, not what we can't possibly know. Does that make sense? Yeah, now casters, I like that. I haven't heard that that much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna have to leave it there, unfortunately. It's been a great discussion uh, and, and thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Brian. Talk soon, bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.
The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.